podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Today on the 1012 Podcast, John Kurtz joins us to talk about the latest in the Big 12 versus Pac-12 and the job that Brett Yormark is doing. Then Eric Lopez of In the Circle discusses UCF, the Big 12 in softball, and the RPI and the quad ranking system. Then Houston softball head coach Kristen Vaselli joins us to talk about the Cougars and what that program is doing before they join the Big 12 next season. Welcome to the 1012, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference, plus BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. We are the flagship show of the 1012 Network and partners with Sports Drink, your water cooler for all things sports and not sports, a fantastic podcast network in their own right. I'm your host, Philip Slavin. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday. A loaded show I have for you today. Three fantastic guests, three great interviews. We don't talk about realignment or the Pac-12's media issues, or the Big 12, a lot here, unless some massive news breaks. Because, frankly, not a lot of news actually breaks much lately. It's just a lot of rumor. Uh, But it did seem like a good time to kind of touch base on that. It's why I'm very excited to have John Kurtz here. I think he's done an incredible job covering the story from a Big 12 perspective with a slight Big 12 bias, but for good reason. So I think you guys are really going to like that. Uh, Eric Lopez, fantastic guest. A conversation about quads and quad rankings and the RPI in college softball is alone worth sticking around for that one. And then Houston softball head coach Kristen Vaselli is a Houston program, I think, is going to get things turned around before they get to the Big 12 or by the time they get to the Big 12. So three gate guests, stick around for all of that. Congrats to the Kansas women's basketball team, the program who got gypped and should have been in the NCAA tournament, got left out. One of the highest RPI teams, I think if they weren't first team out, they were like third team out. They are in the NIT, sorry, the WNIT championship game that will be played on Saturday against Columbia. I have a good feeling Kansas will uh, be enjoying the trophy on in that one. I know Andy is very, very excited about that. Something else I'm excited about is home-filled apparel. The most comfortable vintage college sports apparel you will find anywhere. I cannot wait for my last mystery box. I cannot wait to see which team I get a shirt for. There's a couple of schools I would prefer not to, which means I'm probably going to end up with an, an Iowa shirt. Unless it's got Caitlin Clark on it, I don't want it. We'll see what happens. But you can enjoy any of the incredibly comfortable, well-thought-out, beautifully-designed, T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies, or joggers from Homefield Apparel. All you got to do is go to the store, pick out anything from the more than 100 schools they have available there, including every current and future Big 12 school. Use the promo code NETWORK12, N-E-T-W-O-R-K-1-2 for 15% off your first purchase. It's a fantastic deal. Take advantage of it. I would do it now. I would do it soon. Just a hint, just a nudge, just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. Well, do we have a lot of softball to talk about today? The two best softball programs in the country. The two softball programs ranked one and two by everybody. Not only exist in the state of Oklahoma, they exist in the Big 12, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Bedlam is later this year. I cannot wait for that. We're going to try and get something cool for Bedlam. We're going to try and do something neat. Uh, try to continue to cover the Big 12 in softball 
uh, and get some uh, current team guests. I know we've had BYU. We've got Houston this week. We wanted to get all the incoming schools covered. We had uh, Cindy Ball Malone before the season started, but we're going to continue to focus on current roster. I've got a few other things in the lineup in the can for the next few weeks. Of course, we'll be just doing one episode a week now that hoop season is over, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be paying attention that we aren't going to try and provide you with incredible episodes once a week, every week, loaded with fantastic guests. So, as I mentioned, three great guests on this episode. You know what? Let's get to it. Very excited to have on the show for the first time. He is one of the voices, the lead voice you will hear if you listen to In the Circle podcast, one of the best college softball podcasts there are. You will also hear his voice if you listen to UCF softball games on ESPN+. He is Eric Lopez. Eric, welcome to the 1012, man. It's an honor to be here for the first time. Thanks for uh, having me on. Absolutely. Uh, you are a guest I've had on my uh, to-get list, and so we're very excited to have you here today. I got, a, I got a little list of things that I'd like for us to go over, and I want to start with UCF. You follow this team. You cover this team. You're very close to this team, and look, I don't think there's any argument this has been a disappointing start to the season, especially after you look at last year, getting to Hoster Regional, getting to Supers, having the incredible season they had, winning the AAC, and and Look, they lost a significant amount of talent and some key pieces off last year's roster. And Coach Cindy Malone, we had her on the show. She talks about her philosophy. Like, they did not hold back in their non-conference scheduling. But I, 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 I think it's fair to say, it's hard to say this hasn't been a disappointing start to the year with. They have had a ton of opportunities for marquee wins. I mean, they played, what is this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Like, they've played like 15-ish games against top 25 RPI opponents, and they've only been able to get a couple of them. Um, what is it about this team? Is it is this a drastic drop-off, or is this a team where there's just, just a few key pieces have made the difference going from an incredible season to just a little underperforming? Well, I think it's multiple things. Number one, you've got to start in the circle. In softball, as you know, it always starts in pitching. You lose two great pitcher seniors in Kamal Woodall and Gianna Macho. So you got a young pitching staff that had about eh, less than 100 innings pitch combined coming into the season. So it's a youth, young staff, and they struggle with control issues as many pitchers. So I think they've had to kind of figure out who they are as pitchers uh, because they've never been in these big situations when you're a number one or number two. You're trying to close games out against top competition. Uh, It's a learning curve for them. Uh, Number two, one of the things that I think it's kind of been lost is UCF this year has been without Ashley Griffin, who was their starting catcher slash DP last year, hit middle of the lineup, was an all-freshman performer in the American, middle of the lineup back with good power. She hasn't played one game this year. She got hurt in fall ball and is likely out for the year. So they have not had their starting catcher all season. So now you have, as a result, a new catcher's, to a new pitching staff. So that's been a bit of a, a learning curve, maybe a stiff learning curve. You also, they've been without their leadoff hitter, at least Volpe for the year, most of the year with a back issue. She was supposed to be their starting left fielder. Add this, UCF this season had five losses via the walk-off, none run, not run rule. Talk about dramatic walk-off losses. Four of those five losses were against quad one teams, Alabama, Duke, UCLA, among others. So they've been a little unlucky 
and they've had some injuries, and they've, as a result, it's been a drop-off on the pitching. The offense has been not as consistent as a result. So when you combine all of those things, that's where UCF is, where they're at today, uh, not having the results they would have liked. They, you know, Coach Ball Malone's schedule very difficult. I believe they're the top 20 strongest schedule in the country. And the reason they did that is they wanted to host again a regional. They wanted to get to the Supers. They want to get to the World Series. They also, Coach Ball Malone, scheduled this way to get ready for what's coming next year when you go to the Big 12. And every weekend, it's a battle, a top competition. So I think it was a partly uh, – those are the reasons it's kind of happened for this season. Uh, the good news is that the thing that I'm excited about is that a lot of people share your sentiment of the disappointment, and that's a good thing because people are interested in watching and, and tuning in. I've heard of the feedback. So uh, it's exciting because people are interested. In years past, people are like, eh, whatever. People are generally interested. So, uh, But those are kind of some of the uh, factors that have kind of uh, been in play this season. Well, I, I do think this is a program on the rise. I'll note on your uh, your schedule mentioned, according to D1 softball, UCF had the uh, so far the number 17th ranked non-conference schedule in the country. Uh I do think that is, as you mentioned, people paying attention. Like, this is a program on the rise to me. And they're on the rise at the right time. If, and I, I think you would rather take a setback now, or a step back, let's call it that, as opposed to a setback now, the year before you enter the Big 12, as opposed to in year one in the Big 12. Uh, because this is a conference going through a lot of flux. Obviously, Oklahoma and Texas will be here for next season, and then they will be gone. So you're going to get one season with them. And then it feels, aside from Oklahoma State, as long as you know Coach Gajewski is there, like this conference is kind of wide open from that standpoint. And UCF is in a spot kind of poised to come in and immediately be a challenger in this conference. So like, I do feel like this is a program moving in the right steps. I do feel like it's a little bit of like big step forward, slight step back. But I don't feel like this is some sort of like concern of last year was a fluke. I think this is just, as you mentioned, it makes a lot of sense. You're missing some key pieces, very young on the mound, essentially inexperienced at catcher. Like these are all things that are going to add up when you compile them all together and face the, the caliber and quality of schedule that UCF has so far. And they've been unlucky. I mentioned the five walk-off losses. To put that in perspective, from 2019 to 2022 in the Coach Ball Malone era, UCF had only lost two games via walk-off in a non-run rule situation. Two. Last season, UCF won six games via the walk-off. That was the thing that caught people's imagination. Shannon Doherty with the walk-off against Georgia and Old Miss and Virginia Tech. This year, UCF has won one game via the walk-off. Some of this is unlucky. As you know, in this sport, it's very random. Some years the ball bounces your way. Some years it didn't, and it doesn't. And it hasn't for this particular team. And you wonder with a young pitching staff, does that mess with you a little bit mentally? You know, it's psyche a little bit. So I, I agree with you. I think this is a small setback. And I actually think what's good about this, I think Coach Bob Malone and UCF, while they're trying to get into the tournament, trying to win a conference championship this year, you're also evaluating, all right, what do we need to address this offseason to be ready for the Big 12? You know, we've played a – we simulated a schedule that is going to be tough. They went to Stillwater recently to play Oklahoma State a couple times. You know, what do we need to address to be right away and contend for the Big 12? Not adjust to the Big 12. We want to contend right away. What do we need to do? And I think they'll – you know, they're taking notes there as we speak for next season as far as addressing that from a roster standpoint and what they need to do and, and have these players, which is a core that will be back next year, they will be used to this tough schedule now uh, next year when they're in the Big 12 gauntlet. 
Yeah, Cindy Malone, of course, uh, mentioning you know they've they've seen an increase in interest both from transfers and on the recruiting trail because that they're joining the Big Twelve because of what they were able to do in the postseason last year, reaching super. So I mean, I do think UCF is in a spot right now where they're going. They are more able now than ever to be able to fill those gaps they have with quality, high caliber talent through the portal or out of high school because of what they have achieved so far and because they're joining a power five, which is what the same thing I've heard from Coach Eakin of Baylor and, and Coach Vaselli of Houston. Like they're seeing their recruiting rise because they're joining a power five conference and players are, I mean, that they wouldn't normally have been able to get are now more interested in their programs. A hundred percent agree. Uh, and that's why I think UCF is going to be an attractive place for players are going to want to come from the transfer portal. Uh, even this past year, you saw that with Chloe Evans, who they've added. The right fielder's been a stud for them out of Minnesota. Think about that. Kid from Minnesota is an all-Big Ten performer. comes to UCF. That would never have happened uh, five, seven, year, ten years ago. Uh, Sarah Willis comes over from Washington, a young pitcher who I think will be a big part of their plans uh, moving forward, not just this year, but beyond. Uh, Jaswin Williams comes from Oregon. So you're starting to see that already this year, and I expect, I think, more players will be interested uh, coming in next season. So I think that'll be a big advantage. That's why I believe of all the UCF sports teams, women's soccer and softball to me are the two sports that can contend in, and adjust the quickest in the big 12. Uh, Tiffany Roberts, a Haydeck has done a great job scheduling. They just won the American. They, they have been aggressive on the transfer portal. Uh, they've competed, you know, in the big, you know, I think they can compete in the big 12 women's soccer softball as well. I think the other sports at UCF, is going to be an adjustment period because the jump is going to be significant in, in other sports like baseball, for example, or volleyball. You know, softball and women's soccer, the, the jump is not as big. It's still a jump, but not as big. And I think those two programs in particular are the most set up to maybe contend right away. I do want to talk about the Big 12 with you a little bit. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, we we had a couple of games of UCS for Oklahoma State. UCF didn't face Oklahoma State while in Clearwater, but they continue to challenge uh, caliber t- good caliber teams. Uh, look, as we sit here right now recording this on Wednesday, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are the top two teams in every single ranking, be it RPI, ESPN, USA, D1 Softball, Softball America. So you're coming into a Big 12 conference with, I mean, two teams from the same state who are two of the best in the country. Oklahoma, I mean, I'm not going to argue, is the best in the country. Like, they should be number one. That that team's probably going to win it all. Again, you've got Texas, at least for one more year when you guys are there, who, since freshman class for them, is absolutely incredible. Uh, and then you have a Baylor team who seems to have kind of rebounded after a very young down year last year. They have rebounded. They continue to get better. And look at this roster most of this roster, majority of this roster, will be back again next year as well, barring some wave of transfers we don't foresee. Craig Snyder seems to be have his found some good footing there at Texas Tech in year one. Uh, Kansas seems to be kind of making some steps forward. Not sure what's going on with Jamie Pinkerton and Iowa State, but this is a Big 12 that does feel like it's on the way up. Um, and so you're going to be adding a BYU who's a quality opponent. You're going to be adding Houston, which I know is kind of down these past couple of seasons, but we have seen be a quality caliber opponent and now UCF coming into this I'm I'm curious your thoughts on kind of where you think the Big 12 stands once the three new members join be it just next year or even after Oklahoma and Texas leave kind of in the landscape of college softball well I think right now even when you add those teams they're, they're, they're already a top three league you know I think the top three leagues in softball in no particular order is the Pac-12 which right now according to the RPI is number one this year SEC has been number one 
They're right there still, obviously. And then the Big 12. I think those are your top three leagues. You add these teams, UCF with the nucleus, Houston with the Branton BYU. I think they're going to be in the mix for that top three, you know, number one spot with the Pac-12 in the SEC. No worse than number three. Once Oklahoma and Texas leaves, I think the question becomes, you have Oklahoma State with what Kenny Gajewski has built there. You've got UCF. Baylor, I'm glad you brought up Baylor because I think Baylor has gotten forgotten about this, you know, because they had a couple down years. But I spoke to Glenn Moore before the season. He loved this team, and he just loved the outlook for this team because of what you mentioned. They were super young a year ago, especially in the circle, pitching-wise. So they took their lumps. And what was interesting about Baylor is they went to the NIC and won that tournament. And I asked him why do that, and he's like, he wanted the reps for his young players. He wanted that postseason experience and growth. And it's, as you've seen, it's paid off this year for them. Their, ER, their pitching staff's much improved. Their offense is good. I think Baylor will be in the mix moving forward. I think Glenn Moore knows what he's doing uh, there. So I think the Big 12, even with Oklahoma, look, you're going to lose something with Oklahoma and Texas, obviously. Let's not kid. But I think still the Big 12 can be the third, top three, top four conference, even with their departures because of what UCF brings to the table, what BYU – I'm a big Gordon Eakin fan. What he's done at BYU is tremendous. Uh, I spoke to him. BYU is stepping up their resources. Uh, I expect them to be in the mix. And I think Houston will get better. I, I, I can't – you know, I think their better days are ahead there with that market. And I, I got to believe with them going to the Big 12, they're going to get better talent in there. They've won before. I think they'll win again. So if they get that from those three – who knows what's on the horizon down the road, too, depending on what happens out west with the Pac-12. This this league could still be one of the top – it could be, I think, will be one of the top conferences in the sport. Yeah, I would say at worst the Big 12 is battling the ACC for that number three spot behind the SEC and the Pac-12 for as long as the Pac-12 um, is as it is. I mean, losing UCLA is definitely going to hurt, but you're still going to have Arizona, Arizona State out there, um, uh, Stanford, the way they're playing – as well, I I don't I don't care what happens. I'll put in the Big Ten at fourth. But I mean, that's from a standpoint of weather stinks. Uh, they're the same issues with baseball for the Big Ten. Um, okay, so I I was listening to the show uh, in the circle, and this was the your co-host brought something up for the first time I'd ever heard anybody mention quad one two three and four wins or losses in relation to college softball. And we've most fans know this when it comes to men's basketball. We hear about quad wins with the net. Quad one is awesome. Two, three, four. That don't make sense. We understand there's the home road and away. But this is the first time I've ever heard anyone mention quad one through four in softball. And as you have explained to me, like this is something that the selection committee utilizes when putting together their field each year. Um, can you just kind of explain like what the quad system is for softball for those for, for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, I've spoken to committee chair people in softball over the last few years on the show and then on, even not on the show, uh, but the last couple of years been on the record on the show. And I've talked to people that have been in the committee to, to, to get an idea of what they're doing. Cause I do a bracketology uh, for extra inning softball, which you can check out. I've already started doing that a couple of weeks in and I've done this for a decade cause nobody ever did bracketology in softball. They did it for the other sports. I'm like, why is nobody doing this? So I wanted to learn more about it to try to get a more accurate description because a lot of schools would be blindsided, not making the tournament. And they're like, why didn't we get in? And you know, never got an explanation. So I always wanted to get people's explanation what to look for. So 
what the committee does, they have like a ton of data points, quote unquote, they, they, they take into effect. They do use the RPI. It's not the only thing they use, but it is the RPI is the main tool, one of the main tools they use. And what they use in that RPI is quad one wins, which are teams that are one through 25 in the RPI, basically. Quad twos is from 26 to 50. Some people, you know, quad threes are all the way from to 51 to 100. Some of the committee members actually cut it off at 75 to maybe go more lenient, two and three quads. And then quad fours, which are bad losses, uh, are 101 uh, beyond in, in quad four losses. Uh, strength of schedule is another thing they use. But that's what the quads are. So when they host a team, for example, UCF, one of the things that helped them in hosting uh, the regionals last year and just, you know, a, they had a ton of top 25 RPI wins. Another thing that the committee will use as a tool is how many wins against the top 10 you got from a hosting standpoint, because they do have extra data that they'll use from a hope for hosting purposes. UCF, for example, had a win against Virginia Tech last year, who was a top 10 team that helped them from a hosting resume standpoint. Uh, the bubble, they usually use quad ones and quad twos. What's your non-conference schedule strength? That's a non-negotiable thing your schedule strength overall, how you do uh, in, in that quad two, three, four. Uh, so that's kind of the, the gist of it, what they use. There's other aspects that they do use, but those are the main meat and potatoes that they use to decide on the at-large selections. So now that I understand this and have learned about this, um, I, I have an issue with this. And let me explain what that is. Um, I, I'm fine with RPI. I, I don't... However you want to rank the teams through one through 306, because there are 306 programs in D1 softball, which, you know, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. No, it is, because they have men's basketball. We talk about how crazy and big men's basketball is. There's like 352 schools in Division One, So it's not that big a difference. There are a lot of Division One softball programs. My issue with the quad system and the way they have it set up is this. In men's basketball... There is division between home, neutral, and road. And so lower-ranked teams on the road are worth more than a lower-ranked team at home. But we don't have that in softball. It's just a flat 1 through 306. So there's no difference whether you play a team on the road or home. Okay, fine. That's whatever. My issue is this. In men's basketball, out of there are 160 teams count out of the 352 as either a quad 1, 2, or 3 win at home out of 160 teams that is 45 percent of the program so basically 55 percent of d1 men's basketball counts as a quad four game at your home field your home court cool got it i get that that makes a little sense softball there's no home for road or neutral it's just total 68 percent of the d1 softball programs currently count as a quad four game no matter where you play them I understand the lack of parity in softball compared to men's basketball. I understand, I don't want to say the lack of, uh, of depth of talent. I don't think that's fair. But just, I mean, the lack of parity, the lack of, uh, the bottom is not good. And I understand all of that. What bothers me is the very notion that 68% of D1 softball programs are considered terrible. Because if you say quad four, like our mindset is be like, that's a terrible team. You've played a terrible team. You shouldn't have a bunch of those on your resume. I have a problem by saying 68% of this sport is terrible. That bot, I, And I realize it would be nitpicking to say we should put that to 130, to 140. 
But 68% is a massive number to say you're all awful and you don't matter and you shouldn't count towards anything good. And God forbid if you lose to one of those teams. Well, you're not going to get, you're going to get a lot of people that support you on that. You're not the first to have brought that up. That is one of the re that is one of the main reasons why basketball did away with the RPI and went to the net to emphasize home court, road games, neutral conference games. You know, one of the things that bothers me is teams like one of the reasons why I think UCF's going to be excited to be in the Big 12 is, you know, UCF's going to go on the road in some of these places and get punished, even if they win, because it's considered a quad four game. Like Memphis is a quad four series on the road. Tulsa is quad three. You know, there is, you're right, there is no pinpoint like we got, you know, this is a difference there. And I, I agree with you. I think that's a bit harsh. It, it, some, you know, the mid major coaches have told me they feel they hate it. Uh, they think it's an advantage to the major conferences. They think that's why the SEC gets as many teams as they do because they every game they're playing is basically quad one or quad two. Uh, and that's not just mid-major coaches. Other major conferences have talked about how the SEC and the Pac-12 have had an advantage, especially the SEC where they could bust all over the place. So you're not wrong. Uh, the problem is they haven't figured out a formula that would replace the RPI. Because I've asked the committee chair people in the, la in the past, has there been conversations of eliminating the RPI or replacing the RPI like basketball did? And, you know, I know, for example, in the Big Ten, and talking to coaches there, the the person they keep bringing up is Kevin Paga, who is a math person, has worked, has helped with the NFL schedule. He's got his own system. I've had him on the podcast this offseason where he does the KPI. And in that episode, he explains the flaws in the RPI and how his system can fit that. And he includes win-loss results. Uh, some people now, you know, there's other systems that include margin of victory, which is a very controversial topic. Some people like that, some don't. So nobody can really agree on a system to replace this RPI. So as a result, we're kind of stuck with this until anybody changes it. But I don't disagree with you. I think the RPI is flawed. I'm not saying that you shouldn't use it. My issue is that this is the only thing that we use, and it's the end-all, be-all. And I think that's a big mistake, uh, and I, I don't like that. I think there's a lot of extreme ex circumstances when it comes to softball. For example, there are some teams – with their number one pitcher is drastically different than their number two pitcher. There's a drop-off. So you're being punished to losing to a team that on the resume says it's not great, but if you look at when you play them and they throw your number one, they're a different team. Why don't we have a metric for that? How do you do against certain teams when they throw their number ones? Number two, there's none of that differences and variety that the net has. And I'm not saying that the net is perfect either. I have some flaws, issues with the net as well. But I do think the net is a positive step, uh, direction that what basketball has done to some extent. I actually like what the basketball committee does. They use the net, but it's not the end-all, be-all. We've seen that where some of the team's net rankings that are not great still get in, and some teams that have good nets don't get in. They use other variables. Uh, I would like, to me, the committee, to have multiple things. Use Massey uh, that, that uses, uh, you know, and things like that. Use multiple metrics. Uh, not just the RPI to come up with, to help you pick this field. And oh, by the way, there's this old thing called, you know, watch the games and watch the team with your eye test as well. I think that should matter, which in softball for many years didn't was not used. Yeah, I just, again, it, it does benefit the SEC. It's why we see them get like everybody in, except for the last two years, and they still complained because, you know, not good South Carolina got left out. Oh, woe is them. <laughs> uh, 
I just, like, again, if we want to quibble about how we rank the teams, that's fine. I, I, I'm, I, it's more to do to me with, like, the fact that you judged that larger percentage of college softball as awful. Because that's what Quad 4 is. And so, like, right. you're, like, okay, I don't under... That that just doesn't like. Then just say that. Like we just don't think there are very many good teams. Okay. Well, well which also explains why it's hard for teams to schedule up when, yeah. like, I don't want them on. I don't. I don't. I don't want these. What is that? Uh, Two hundred and six teams on my res on my resume at all. I don't want to play them. Like I, I. I don't want that. And if you have a shorter conference schedule, like the Big Twelve has been dealing with, so you have to play more non conference games. Like that does make it put you at a disadvantage versus the SEC, who can schedule significantly fewer non conference. Focus on playing some good teams. Keep that RPA higher, even though they maybe don't have that good a record, and then get into SEC play and then go and be terrible in the SEC, win three games, but still somehow make the postseason. Agree 100%. The other factor is there are some good teams that the RPI would suggest they're not. And I'll give you an example. Like Oakland last year won the Horizon. They had a good pitcher, Sydney Campbell. When she throws, they've beaten good teams. When they when they when she doesn't throw, they lose. They won the Horizon. What's funny about this, UCF played them, beat them. It's a quad four win. Oh, no big deal. Yet one of the other metrics that the committee does use, ironically enough, is how does this team's win-loss record against the projected field? So when Oakland wins the automatic bid, UCF gets credit for that win as far as the record against the field, but yet gets punished by the RPI for playing that game. Does that make any sense? <laughs> not, not, not any at all. Not none. And that, and that just goes back to like, like yeah. again, I'm not trying to, you know be overly charitable here and it's probably nitpicking of 30 40 spots but like i that's 306 teams folks it's not you know 100 100 there's 306 teams no i agree i agree i think it definitely we've got to find something better i agree and i i just wonder if the effort will be pushed to finding something they did for basketball because basketball is obviously mainstream and, and there's a lot of pressure there i don't know you know and the problem with softball is it gets lumped in with baseball and volleyball. So it's like, from what I'm told, well, if we've got to change it for this sport, we got to change it for all the sports. I'm like, why? <laughs> why? Like, if one sport figures out a formula, why does the why do we have to get approval from the other sports? I don't know. It just drives me nuts. Why can't we just have each sport be independent of each other instead of – so because soccer likes the RPI, we we have to use it? Like, I'm not saying that soccer does. I'm just using it as a say, example. Sure. Uh, it just drives me kind of bonkers. Trust me. Um and then, you know, the, and especially the committees in softball, let's be real, it's gotten better. But there was a time there where people in the committee are like, do they even know what softball is? Have they even been to a softball game? It's gotten better over the last few years, but it's still not like where basketball is, where you have a lot of some basketball people in there. I would like Ooh. to see more softball people in a softball committee. Uh, but that's who a whole makes other up topic. the softball committee. Well, no, no, who Administ makes up the softball committee? Some administrators, SWAs. Uh, who are basically, you know, in charge of women's sports. You know, they're kind of like what the ADs are on the men's side. Uh, there is, they do have a coach or two. They also have this thing called the RAC where they have the regional committees and they do have some coaches input there as well, but it's all secretive. So it's kind of there, but you know, they have their committee people uh, that in the chair, they do have some coaches that are rep more now than they used to. So that's a good thing, but there still could be more improvement. As softball becomes more popular, as as its as its popularity and awareness continues to grow, I think it's just a matter of the voices have to get louder and louder, and those who 
push the sport and promote the sport and look to grow the sport have to become more vocal. And so it puts more pressure on the NCAA, who's going to treat softball, baseball, soccer, volleyball, all those other Olympic sports in similar light. They're just, they're, they're not as important to them as football and basketball. And I understand from a financial revenue standpoint, I get all of that, blah, 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 blah. But I, it's just, you're asking the NCAA who can barely handle what they do now to do more. And I, that's, I mean, right. No shocker why it's still well, the way it is. Well, I'll tell you a topic that's a hot burner that I think is going to become a big topic this offseason is seeding. Uh, softball only seeds 16 teams, like baseball, for example. Volleyball, women's soccer, this fall experimented with seeding 32 teams. So instead of just the top 16, they go 17 to 32. Why that is significant is, as you know, in sports like softball, baseball, and all that, they have this rule called the 400 mile radius rule. Where in other words, after, you know, from what I was told from the committee is they pick the 16 best teams to host. That's how they use it. They, that's how they, they claim that's what they do. After that, it's they have to pro- put principles like, can this team bust to here and there? So as a result, you don't have a true, you have an imbalanced bracket where you could have a stacked regional in one particular region and in another region be a soft regional. Uh, for example, UCF historically has gone to Florida or Florida State when they don't host because they can bust there. They, they, they never fly out. Uh, there's other examples of that. And I think that it, it, there's a talk among the sport, depending on the feedback they get from women's soccer and volleyball, that they want to go to 32. And I wonder if we're going to see that for next year, seeding to 32. I know Courtney Dyfel's been outspoken, the Arkansas head coach, about that because she feels that she's in a disadvantage because she could have a high seed and they had, or, you know, they had teams like Wichita busing there every, every other year, for example, Uh, you have teams like Florida state that has an sec team pretty much guaranteed to go to Tallahassee because just about everybody in the sec can bus to Tallahassee. So there's been coaches that have been outspoken about that volleyball did it. And if the feedback is positive, I would not be surprised if you start seeing the softball go into 32 seats, which would eliminate some of that predictability. And that's significant in the big 12 because, you know, there's a big question about the Oklahoma, Oklahoma state rivalry. What's going to happen, which to me right now has become the premier rivalry in softball. And this week, this year's matchup in Bedlam is enormous. It could decide the big 12 championship. It could decide who's the number one overall seed. The, the future is uncertain on whether they're going to play or not. And part of the reason is concerns about, well, are we going to see each other in the regionals or super regionals because of geography? If you see 32 teams, that really shrinks those odds. So I think it'd be good for the sport if they do 32 seeds, you have new matchups, and you kind of get rid of this paranoia of, oh, let me, you know, we, I can't play that team because I'm going to see them in the regional because they're going to bust to my place. That would eliminate some of that. And I also eliminate some of the conspiracy theories that's out there that people believe teams are hosting because three teams can bust to their regional versus a team that's more deserving that cannot. That conspiracy theory is out there. The committee does not like that conspiracy. They swear that's not the case. But that conspiracy theory is just as much there as NBA conspiracy theories are out there as well. So those are some of the factors to look for this offseason. Uh, it will be very interesting. Don't get me wrong. I love the four teams in one region. It's very exciting. It makes for good TV to kind of follow it that way. But I also understand creating more fair and balanced and competitive tournament, which, again, we're trying to grow the sport. 
that's a big thing to do. So, Eric, I appreciate all your time today, man. You've been absolutely fantastic. Do me a favor. Where can everybody follow all the great work you do covering UCF and college softball? Uh, follow me on Twitter, Eric Lopez Elo. Follow our podcast, In the Circle. It's on twice a week, In the Circle SB. It's on your favorite podcast, wherever you listen to it. Subscribe, give us a five-star review. We also have a YouTube channel there where we post a lot of video interviews as well. Uh, and then, obviously, you can hear me broadcasting games on ESPN Plus throughout the season with UCF games. We've got UCF South Florida coming up in April. Big one, Warren I-4, as they call it, April 21st through the 23rd. Got Houston. So uh, UCF Houston will finish. Ironically, UCF and Houston will, will be one of the last American Conference series that both of those teams will have before going to the Big 12. So uh, you can watch me there on ESPN Plus, uh, among other stuff that I do. And uh, I appreciate you having me on, sir. This is uh, this has been a blast. I've enjoyed your work, so I'm glad I finally get to uh, appear on your show. I feel like we're going to be talking a lot more, especially once UCF is officially in the Big 12, uh, and we'll be uh, basically covering the same conference, sir. I can't wait. Uh, the, uh, can we get there already? I, I'm okay. I'm good with fast-forwarding. <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll get here soon enough. Thanks, bud. Hey there, folks. This is Justin Hiles of the Viva La Cats podcast, which is now proudly presented by the Big 12's premier podcasting group, the 1012 Network. My co-host Steve and I cover all the ins and outs of Cincinnati football and basketball, for better or for worse. We release a new episode every single week, sometimes with guests, sometimes it's just the two of us kicking back talking Bearcats. So, if you like raw emotion and heavy recency bias, we are definitely victims of that. It clouds our conscious, and it should cloud yours too. We also have an every once in a while Twitter Spaces post-game review on our page at Pod on Twitter, where we invite all of our friends and enemies to discuss everything that we just witnessed minutes prior. If you like your podcast with a laid-back environment, way too serious about stupid ideas, the deepest of stat pools, or just straight-up white noise, then you've come to your one-stop shop for everything Bearcats. Viva the Cats. We don't talk a lot about what's going on with the Pac-12 and what it means for the Big 12 on this show a lot. For one, I don't think there's been that much in the way of actual news that's come out about it in a while, despite numerous Dennis Dodd reports, at least one every few days or so, thanks to Endeavor and the Big 12. But it is something we should probably touch base on because it does feel like this is starting to get closer to maybe something actually happening in relation to the Big 12 and what that means, or what something for the Pac-12 and what that means for the Big 12. Plus, we got some news about Fresno State because, frankly, the university president wants to get a tax pass so that they can get some money for a new stadium. But look, uh, when it comes to people who have done a good job from the Big 12 side of covering everything that's going on, uh, there's one person in particular, so I'm very excited to have him on the show for the first time. That is John Kurtz. Uh, he is John Kurtz on YouTube uh, and uh, Three Ma, one of the hosts of the Three Ma podcast for Kansas City Sports Network. Uh, John, welcome to the show, man. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Look, I, when it comes to this stuff, everyone has a little bias. It's it's hard not to. Uh, we, we know the Johns, the Kenzano and Wilner. Uh, there's Jason <laughs> Shear, who seems like the one like uh, crazy uncle of the Pac-12 media coverage. Uh, and when it comes to the Big 12 side, I think you've done a very good job of being as fair and balanced from a Big 12 bias as as anyone really has. So that's the reason I wanted to get you on to kind of talk about this. I want to start here like i said we haven't we don't talk about it on the show a whole lot i've really tried to focus on just big 12 stuff i get it it's not a shot at anybody who does there's enough people doing it who do a good enough job that i don't see any reason for me to also be just adding another voice into the light when people like you do as well as you do of it so just like where do you feel like at this point things kind of stand as far as the pac 12 and the big 12 
Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying all that because I, first and foremost, I, I try to be as as balanced with it as I can, which I know some would would roll their eyes at that. Certainly, if you if you follow me on Twitter, you probably roll your eyes at me on that, which is, I mean, that's fair. You know, I'm trying to poke the bear a little bit there. But I mean, in reality, what you have in, in this realignment space is a lot of people who want to claim that they have inside information when I just frankly don't think that that really exists much at all, as we've seen with Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, people are not tight-lipped in Austin, and there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, people that think they're important. And we didn't hear a peep about that until a Texas A&M reporter broke it because Texas A&M was upset and they leaked it to them. Um, same thing USC and UCLA. I mean, had there been signs USC was unhappy? Yes, but like nobody knew that was actually happening until bam, right before it actually happens and, and John Wilner drops it. So you have this whole crowded space with a lot of people trying to claim they have inside info and claim that, you know, this show knows this is what's happening. I, like, frankly, I don't know that anybody really knows because these things, these decisions are so high level. They're so important and so consequential that they, they get really held under lock and key and, and people actually do a pretty good job of that. So I just kind of push back against some, I try not to be that. I, I don't want to be that. And I don't want to be completely biased. You're going to get some of my bias because honestly, the the way that the channel started was, because I wanted to be somebody that was an advocate for the Big 12 and there weren't many uh, in July of 2021. I mean, it just felt like the entire world, Pac-12 included, um, was was just dancing on the grave uh, of the Big 12. So that, that was the genesis of it. But at the same time, that leads me into what we basically have right now is the same way that anybody argues about politics, the same way that anybody argues about sports, the same way that anybody argues about virtually anything. These days in, in 2023 in America, it's that it's like I was talking about it last night on my show. It's like the ink blot test where, you know, they show someone a blot of ink. One person will take that information or the visual and look at it and interpret something completely different than the other side will. And you have that right now where a, a, a report will come out, a fact will come out, a quote will come out, and the Pac-12 side will interpret it through their lens and say, hey, this, this is a great sign. This is really good. This is a positive thing for the Pac-12. The Big 12 will look at it and say, no, you 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 guys are idiots. You're in trouble. Everything is doomed. The Pac-12 is going to come crashing down. The Big 12 is going to be the beneficiary. I think the reality is somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I do think that the Pac-12 is in a lot. The Pac-12 is in a precarious situation. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I, I think the reality of their situation is that George Klyovkov, I think it's we can piece together enough things now that we can realize that he overpromised and was likely – pushing this in the neighborhood before the big 12 signed their deal, of course, which was 31.6 million uh, per school per year with that TV deal. Before that, the, the Klyukov was kind of selling like, Hey, we could get 40 mil plus per school uh, per year, which I think was a gross overpromise, no matter whether or not they want to argue that the big 12 came in and set too low of a floor. So he's not done a great job of managing expectations. And I, I just don't think he's done a very good job of managing the narrative. And that's gotten a little bit, out of control on them. I think they're going to have a hard time getting a number that is above what the big 12 is. Maybe they get close to it, but I think if they, if they get close to it, it's going to be at the expense of exposure uh, because the PAC 12, uh, one of the latest disputes where people take different information is Fox and whether or not Fox is actually involved. I, I don't think Fox is, is seriously involved for a big chunk of the content it may wind up that the PAC 12 has some games on FS one. It's not going to be a major piece of the deal. So you're talking about ESPN, which is going through massive layoffs and cutting back. They just laid off a bunch of people yesterday. They've had changes in leadership. They are saying that they're going to scale back on some of the spending. Uh, so the timing's not great there. Then you're talking about Apple, 
which notoriously takes a long time to negotiate. You're talking about Amazon, which does have Thursday night football. But what the word is from kind of the sports media side of things that Amazon would probably want your tier one games and the top quality stuff. And that is not what the Pac-12 wants to do because, again, exposure. That would be terrible for exposure. So they're in a tight spot where it's like you might be able to make the money work close to the Big 12 and sell that in a press release. But you're going to be doing the expense of exposure. Even if you want to say, hey, the world's moving towards streaming. It's, if you're telling recruits like, hey, man, you got to go download this app to watch our game. Like, yeah, they might might be more willing to do it than some. But you're also, what about like in a sports bar, right? Or just wherever people have TVs on and flip on games. If they have to take that extra effort to go find Amazon and whatever, it, it's going to hurt your visibility for your product. So the Pac-12 is trying to find the right mix of that. The Big 12 is trying to stand there and say, hey, we, we offer more flexibility. We offer more, certainly long-term stability will probably offer a little bit more money and we'll have a lot more visibility. And we're going to have a basketball behemoth, which I think one of the other storylines right now is that Brett Yormark is going to try to separate the basketball rights uh, and go scoop up some of these big E schools perhaps, and and really turn this thing into a monster basketball wise. So you have a lot happening, a lot of moving parts, a lot of speculation and a lot of talk as I can attest to, because I do it at least twice a week. Um, but yeah, in terms of tangible newsy things happening right now, we're all just waiting on the PAC 12 to finalize their media deal, which is moving at a snail's pace. And I mean, it was, it's been like over 40 days now since we got that unified unity statement from the PAC 12, where they said, what was it? Very short order. It was like very, very near future, very near future that they were expecting to have a media deal done. That clearly has not happened. And the further and further we you get with that, the more you're just leaving the door open for, some realignment craziness to happen. So that that's really the situation. We're waiting on the Pac-12 media deal without a lot of tangible news, and people are kind of speculating and going back and forth on, on both sides of the aisle. It definitely feels like every you know, article or rumor that comes out at this point, nothing is going to happen until there is a final offer on the table for the Pac-12. When, when be it Amazon or Apple, ESPN, Fox, whatever other random uh, network some reporter wants to throw in there, whether for laughs and giggles or just because they've heard some weird rumor, like until there is an actual final, this is the best we're going to get. I don't think this is going to like anything is actually going to happen. You're going to continue to have the Big 12 and Endeavor and their PR and continue to be vocal and put pressure on Klyavkov and put pressure on the Pac-12 schools and presidents to try and Continue to remind them of the opportunity they have here. You're going to have those within the Pac-12 whose futures would be quite dire if the conference falls apart, being very pro, everything's great, you're all wrong, we're going to be fine. Uh, and then you have, I mean, I think to some extent, even the interview that the Arizona president had recently, it's very, it just feels very, we don't know. Like, we, we're, we're reaching a point where we're weighing all options, and more things are on the table than everyone wants to, I think, admit until we actually have a final contract. It feels like every time they have a meeting, maybe we get an update. We don't like this update. I don't know. But I, it does feel like we're just kind of in a holding pattern. Like nothing's actually going to happen until we say, this is the best number we're going to get. It's take it or leave it. And if, as the speculation is right now, Apple is is one of the main players here for the Pac-12, we might be waiting a while uh, because they have been... Uh, I, I know the the sports business journal guys have used the word persnickety uh, before with Apple in terms of how they deal in negotiations. Basically, the idea is Apple doesn't care what the Pac-12's timeline needs to be. Apple doesn't care about 
any worry about Arizona jumping to the Big 12. Like Apple is a behemoth. You're going to do it on Apple time. You're not going to do it on Pac-12 time if you're coming to the table to negotiate with them. So it, it, it may well take a while. And I think, you know, of all the interviews that have happened, so an example recently of something that has come out, Big 12 takes it as good news on their side, Pac-12 takes it as good news on their side. You had this media blitz of both the Arizona and Arizona State presidents going out and talking. I think the Utah president did a little bit as well, um, which the Pac-12 viewed it as, all right, they must feel like something is going well with the negotiations to send these presidents out to be talking about it publicly. Meanwhile, the Big 12, you could and you could look at specific different quotes where, you know, the president of Arizona, frankly, I thought was the best in all of this and was the most truthful and insightful in terms of the real reality of the situation. But depending on which article you read, whether it was uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was Wilner on the Pac-12 side or if you were reading like Dennis Dodd, depending on which quote you pull, it sounds like there's one that's like, hey, look, we're committed to the Pac-12. We think we're going to get a deal that's going to satisfy everybody that was definitely i'm paraphrasing but that was definitely a part of what the arizona president said you can look at that as the pac-12 and say hey we just dunked on you how about that and the john canzanos of the world will tell you that hey that's the pac-12 dunking on the big 12 but another part of that as you alluded to was the arizona president was just very honest and said like hey look like we're not going to do anything until we know what the pac-12 number is then we can evaluate what our future affiliation is going to be so just set it out in the open that there is an evaluation that needs to happen about where they're going to be long-term, which would mean the door is open to the big 12. And that's long been speculated as the, the most eager potentially to jump to the big 12, which frankly, because of basketball alone um, is the most logical thing there that they would be the most logical of the four corner schools to jump. Um, the the uh, Arizona president, by the way, also admitted to uh, the word, the term was like affinities that they have affinities for the big 12 because of basketball and culture and fit and all of that that was a public admission that there are things that they really like about the big 12 so that to me was the the realist quote-unquote of the interviews that we got by the way arizona states i think it was the athletic director at arizona state had come out and admitted that this whole process has been very frustrating like there is clearly internal struggle and frustration within the pac-12 so anybody that wants to tell you that it's all you know roses and candy and lollipops and unicorns i mean that's that's definitely not true either i think the arizona president really spelled it out correctly they need to see what that final number is going to be they'll come back and compare everything it's not just an apples to apples what's the money it's money exposure home for our basketball program uh all these different things that can go into the calculus there for arizona and that's the reality nothing the big 12 is not i don't think going to pull arizona before something gets put in front of them like hey here's the deal from the pac-12 because all things being equal they, they prefer to stay like who, who likes moving no, nobody likes moving. Like if you're going to get a similar sort of deal, you'd rather stay in the current apartment, right? Now, if you're moving to a mansion, then that's that's a little bit different. But the whole process of moving still is not fun. So, of course, yes, I think Arizona, if they could stay in the Pac-12, they would love to. But it's whether or not they feel like it will be an upgrade to move. And they have to do the calculus on all of that. And, and I use Arizona as the biggest example there because I think a lot of this would be kind of like a domino effect. You, you, you've got to wiggle one loose first and then – Perhaps Colorado, who has already obviously been in the Big 12, would come with you. Perhaps Arizona State would. Utah, I think, would be at the bottom of that pecking order because they've been pretty defiantly um, thumbing their nose at the Big 12 throughout this entire process, both privately and publicly. Um, but Arizona would be the one to watch. However, I'm, I'm with you. I just I don't think anything happens there until whatever negotiating needs to get done gets done uh, on the Pac-12 side of things, no matter how many negative news cycles uh, they have to endure on the way there.
we had Matt Brown of Extra Points on the podcast last fall, and 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 ever since I've had that interview with him, I've been pretty ardent in the fact of, look, unless the money, the whole point was always unless the money is significantly less than the Big Twelve, your point on moving is a big deal because. People view like, yeah, just switch conferences. It's not as simple as switch conferences. You're going to go from playing teams in a region that you are in close proximity to, even though Oregon and Washington are far away, that you have had long-standing relationships with that from an academic standpoint, because that does matter more to the Pac-12 than I think it does to the Big 12. Let's just all be honest about it. We know that it does. Um, they are all in alignment. And it's a big difference to say we're going to play teams from Arizona and Colorado and California and Oregon and Washington versus Texas and Iowa, and Ohio, and West Virginia, and Orlando, Florida. Like, that is a big part of the calculus that goes into this as well. Plus, I mean, the other big thing has always been, like, these are, as you mentioned, these are very, very few people who may, who know what's actually going on because these are decisions made by school presidents, not by coaches, not by athletic directors, not by boosters. These are made by school, by university presidents and chancellors who will make the decision what the conference affiliation will be. And one of the big things that matters from that standpoint, one of the biggest reasons Colorado left for the Pac-12 when they left the Big 12 in the first place was not just because of the turmoil, it's because how much of their alumni base is in California and on the West Coast. And they thought that that would benefit an athletic program athletic department that had been struggling for some time pretty much across the board so if your alumni is in california large amount of your alumni is in california you're used to these people that you've been with for a very long period of time and the money is close even if it's less if it's close and you don't feel like the uh the, the number of eyeballs you're going to be in front of are significantly fewer than you would in the Big 12, then you're just going to go, hey, this is fine for now. Because I don't think this is going to be a long-term deal, whatever they sign. This does feel like it will be a short-term deal. If you ask, if you ask my opinion, the Pac-12 will stay together. They will, Klyavkov will do enough to keep them together. Not enough to make us all feel confident in him, but enough to keep it together. And then we'll do all of this again in another five, six years when they've had, they've gone through whatever this contract is and gone, this isn't, this isn't working out. Yeah, I would agree. Like if you if you ask me for my prediction, I'd say probably 70-30. I think the the scenario that you outlined there that they'll they'll do enough, probably slightly lower than the Big 12 number, right around 30 mil uh per school per year. It'll have a fairly heavy streaming component. So they they're going to be losing some on the exposure aspect of that to the Big 12, but it would be enough just to be a band-aid and and probably I mean I think like 3 to 5 years for the grant of rights. I think they'll have to go pretty short with that because a part of this that we have not discussed that is one of the crucial points of this. And frankly, I don't think it's discussed enough is getting Oregon and Washington to sign on the dotted line where they're signing away their, their TV rights for any period of time, because the big 10 is an interesting lever that can be pulled in all of this, because the second that they open the doors to Oregon and Washington, I think even at a discounted revenue share, they're going to be gone. And, and frankly, it would be the smart move. I mean, especially if you're a place like Oregon, you've got Phil Knight money, you, you know, you can you can band-aid some of that, even if you're not getting a full revenue share in the Big Ten. But that's obviously where they want to be. And I, I think they are going to, it's pretty clear to me, they're going to get there, whether it's the Big Ten or perhaps, I guess, wild card, SEC, they're going to get to one of the two big boy conferences, I think, at some point. Um, but the Big Ten is going through a lot of change now. Certainly, if Kevin Warren were still there, I think that absolutely would have happened. He definitely won to kind of divide and conquer um that seemed to rub some people in the big 10 the wrong way and they didn't really have the appetite to kill the pac-12 um and now he's gone so we'll we'll see who they hire and and what that's going to look like that's another element here because 
right now you have Oregon and Washington sitting there like, all right, we're waiting what this TV deal is going to be, but we're also waiting to see who's the big 10 going to hire and what, what's that person going to feel about expansion? How will our status shift or change or what will it be uh, with the big 10 where we really actually want to be? And how will that timing sync up with what this PAC 12 TV deal is? So I think that's a fascinating component to this is like, what do they do? How do you convince them to to lock things up? You know, there's been a lot of discussion lately out of the ACC. Uh, another variable in this lately from your Miamis, your North Carolinas, uh, your Florida States, about wanting unequal revenue sharing there because of the situation that they're in. Is that something we could see come to the table ever in the Pac-12 with Oregon and Washington demanding extra money because they clearly are the two biggest brands there? I mean, it. There are a lot of things like that that I think are very tricky. I mean, I do not envy George Klievkov in, in trying to work all of this out, but that that would be to me another one of the really interesting points here. Like, are they will they sign for three years? Will they sign for five years? Like, what what do Oregon and Washington actually want to do here? You mentioned we've heard from Utah presidents, Arizona, Arizona State. We've heard plenty from people connected to Oregon State and Washington State. Oregon and Washington have been almost a black hole of information. It's not just that nothing comes out. I mean, nothing. It's all sinking in on itself. That, that's how it feels. Like, there, there it is. It is deader than quiet out of those two schools. And I think that's that's part of the reason is they're going to do whatever is best for them. And if that is the Pac-12 in the short term, they'll they'll ride with that. But, I mean, I think, I think that's the thing where people's view on the Pac-12's demise being eventual is you're going to lose the two schools left that have the biggest brand for you. And once they're gone, this is all going to come tumbling down. But I also understand from the Pac-12 schools and the presidents why, how much longer can we keep this going? And think back, look, if you think back to when the big 12, Oklahoma and Texas were announced they were leaving, right? Um, if the conference was in a similar spot, now to what then what the Pac-12 is, which we we thought it might be, but it wasn't because they were able to bring on the four schools, and you've brought on Brett Yormark, who's done, I think, incredible things for the Big 12 thus far. But if you were in a spot where it said, "Look, we either just kind of appease Oklahoma and Texas to keep this going as long as possible, or just go ahead and bolt," like we all would have done whatever we had to do to keep Oklahoma and Texas for as long as possible and try and keep this band together. And that's basically what the rest of the schools are similar situation is. We all know Oregon, Washington will at some point leave for probably the Big Ten. We don't know when that's going to happen. Maybe it's not until the end of this current Big Ten contract, the ACC. I, I still think the AC, when the end of the ACC's contract with ESPN is when the I believe the term, the shit will hit the fan, is, is an adequate description of this is all going to come just tumbling down. But until then, it's just it's just this weird spot for the Pac-12 of like, we know it's going to happen. You know she's going to leave you. You just don't know when. And you're yeah. just holding on to hope for as long as possible. To just Maybe if you can just keep her around, she'll change your mind, but she's not going to. Right. I mean, it's kind of like at this point, to further that analogy, I mean, it's just like a, it's like a marriage that's failing, but you feel kind of financially tied to them, right? You, you need the money to keep coming in. Like you, you need, so forget stay together for the kids you know i mean it's stay together for the cash uh right right now for the, the pac-12 <laughs> until that actually until that actually ends and you're just trying to ride that that lifestyle basically as as long as you can especially if you are an oregon state or a washington state right which i, I by the way i do very much feel for those schools in that position being a k-state alum and a k-state fan um somebody that cares deeply about the school and i know what position i felt like k-state was in uh in in july of 2021 when all that was happening so 
yeah, I agree. It it feels very much inevitable and it feels similar-ish to for sure to Texas and Oklahoma. I think the question there is like, and what I don't know at all, this is I, another thing I've tried to do is just be transparent about like what I know, what I don't. I really don't know the the inner workings of like what the dynamics are with Oregon and Washington, particularly Oregon, because I think they swing a bigger stick there and they have Phil Knight. How, how will they throw their weight around? You know, we know Texas was going to throw his weight around all the time. I mean, it, they, they pissed Nebraska off from the word go uh, in the big 12, you know, way back in 1994 when the conference was first brainstormed and 96, when it came into fruition, Texas had made Nebraska mad from day one, and that led to problems the entire time that the conference existed together. Um, I don't perceive Oregon to be quite like that, even in a situation where they hold all the cards and all that leverage, but maybe they turn into that. Um, I don't know. You know I mean? People's, I say like lives are on the line. Obviously it's not real life and death, but if you're talking about like your, your seat at the legitimate college athletics table, that life and death is kind of on the line here. Like that can make people, act desperately, act differently, do different things. And that's a part of why I kind of bristle at some of the Pac-12 academic talk. I understand it means more to them, but we're also talking about unprecedented times here where like there has never been a time like this where your legitimate standing as a power five school is on the line. So I think that can make you act differently and make some decisions come across a little bit differently here, which just adds layers to, I think, how fascinating all of this actually winds up being. But yeah, I'm with you on your point. It's it's a very weird situation where nobody seems to be totally happy in the Pac-12. And you know, even if you get Oregon and Washington to sign here, you just know they're going to be looking over their shoulder uh, the entire time at the Big Ten. And like, when is that going to happen? So that, I think, is one of the, the selling points for the Big 12 there. If you're trying like, look, maybe the money's fairly similar, but you come here, we don't really have anybody that's being coveted by other leagues right now, which I know gets thr- – like Stuart Mandel loves to throw that point out there. Like, what? <laughs> Why is the Big 12 better than the Pac-12 if nobody really wants them? Well, the Pac-12 is so unbalanced with two big brands that are clearly going to leave at some point. that It's just there's no stability there, and stability matters a lot. And the Big 12 is as unified as it's ever been, um, and as unified certainly, I think, as any of the three non-Power 2 conferences that are out there right now. And that does mean something. It does mean something when you're thinking about this long term. I agree. Stability is underrated. Look, I I think one of the most important things in an athletic department is alignment from the top down. And I feel like you look, everyone's out. Every athletic director in the big 12 is not going to be perfectly aligned on everything. And they all have a job to best serve their school, but it does feel like this conference is maybe at its most aligned right now under Brett Yarmark in what they are trying to do for success as a conference and benefit everyone. There's always going to be situations where ADs are going to, push back on this or push back on that or do what's best for the university. But it does feel like there's a decent amount of alignment, maybe even more than we had uh, under the uh, previous uh, commissioner uh, because you have to be so much more aggressive and because they all seem to be on board with what your mark is doing. I want to touch on that before I let you go. Uh, obviously, Brett Yarmark is look, some of the ideas are awesome and some are uh, an okay rap song that goes to, with the big 12 <laughs> basketball tower. Look, I am pro Big 12. I am going to sit here and bang the drum for it. And if you want to put out a song that is fine, I will champion it and put it on as a ringtone for a couple of weeks just to you know do my part. Uh, but I do think there have been ideas, the Rucker Park, the latest one, that are fantastic and very smart. Um, and so, obviously, 
the only school we have heard anyone actually speak to Brett Yormark about in relation to basketball specific is Gonzaga. But we have heard plenty of rumors in relation to UConn and Villanova. Somebody, I think, mentioned St. John's the other day, and I was kind of like, okay, like I know I want the New York presence, but sure, whatever. Um, this plan that seems to be slowly forming to create the Big 12 as a, a basketball entity that can be sold on its own, especially with the idea that the, the, the tournament might expand again. We can save our feelings on that for another day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but it does feel like we have heard for a few years now a lot for people who cover college football, which is always the one part that irritates me. Like, just stay in your sport. That no one cares about college basketball. And look, it, it's fair to say that at the start of the non-conference in November, focus is still on football. It doesn't get into basketball. But we are seeing, the numbers are showing that March Madness continues to, to build and build and build and the number of eyeballs that are on it. And the college basketball season, as I saw this past season, the numbers were up across the board, especially as we got toward the end of the year in February. So it does feel like Brett Yarmark might be onto something here of now is the time when you have a Big 12 conference. It's the best conference in college basketball, men's college basketball, period, hands down, end of story. And a sport that does feel like it's starting to gain back some of what it has lost. I don't think it's going to get back to its heyday, but it is starting to gain back some of it. And you have something as valuable as potentially as the Big 12 basketball. No. Selling it on its own, I don't think, is going to get you to what the SEC is making. But when you aren't the SEC and Big Ten and aren't going to demand the dollars that they are able to, you have to find every other opportunity you can to continue to build and build and build to get closer to them. And separating Big 12 basketball out is a smart move in the future. So I'm curious your thoughts on just trying to sell the conference as a whole, but more specifically, the teams that have been mentioned potentially as joining the Big 12 and how you think that might kind of look and feel when we really put all these different schools together into one collection. Yeah, I, I first of all, I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, and my thinking on this has evolved since we first got the, the, I think it was Pete Thamel that wrote that first story about the Big 12 and Gonzaga. Um, I have evolved in my thinking. I was... I was open to it at the time, but a little bit skeptical because I understand what people immediately came back and said there. Hey, what happens when Mark Few goes? Is this just a one one coach with the school? There's certainly a risk there. I totally get it. You know, Gonzaga is not bringing a lot to the table if, if it's not going to be this elite basketball program that they have right now. I think the whole time it's it's not been about Gonzaga. I think that's a short sighted way to view it. It is what you said. It is going to be playing for something huge. Like Brett Yormark is not a small figure. This is a guy that on his resume has signed the largest deal sponsorship deal in North American sports history uh, on the resume with NASCAR and really spearheaded NASCAR's rise in popularity at that point in time. He also has on his resume, moving the nets from New Jersey to Brooklyn. That was a massive thing. Um, Obviously, he's worked with Jay-Z and guys like that in the entertainment industry, which is why you get stuff like the the song that, you know, we were upon. And by the way, I was in New York at Madison Square Garden watching my beloved uh, Wildcats lose the heartbreaking Elite Eight game. And at a timeout late in the game when K-State's down and I'm freaking out, they started playing that song. And I was like, OK, I, I'm going to vomit right now. I don't want to hear this right now. Um, but bad anyway, timing, I think the timing. yeah, it was bad timing for sure. Um I think the entire idea with this is that he is thinking big and I do legit. I very much buy into 
he's try being a big thinker and being an innovative thinker. He sees, hey, kind of the market inefficiency here is that like we can't compete with the Big Ten and the SEC when it comes to football and the ultimate money. We cannot do that. That's a losing game. And I think that's where like I love your Mark's approach versus Klievkov. Klievkov came out and said publicly within the last six months, I forget what if it was at the Pac-12 championship game, what it was around, maybe Pac-12 media day for basketball, I think maybe is what it was. He publicly said, we're going to catch the Big Ten and the SEC financially at some point. Said that publicly, came out of his mouth. I mean, that is an asinine statement. You're not going to do that. Well, what your mark is doing is being like, look, well, we have the best basketball conference in the country, clearly. Um, and there are entities out there that are listening that are great basketball schools. If I go put that together, if I do something that hasn't really been done here and pull the basketball rights out of this, that is a way to create more money and more revenue for my conference. While I'm doing that, I'm going to be building exposure from coast to coast, because if you are talking about getting kind of that Big East cradle of like a uh, adding Creighton, adding a St. John's, I, I know I understand the initial reaction to St. John's there. But that is I mean, New York, I think, does care to a degree about St. John's. Um, and that is something that Brett Yormark would would really like. Um, you know, you look at what UConn's doing right now. Villanova obviously has won titles. I mean, if you if you pull in a group of schools and you throw it into what the Big 12 is now, I mean, you're talking about I think the the two best basketball conferences essentially combining uh at, at that point. And that is going to be worth something. That's not going to be worth, you know, the 40 million dollar gap that's going to be there between you and the Big Ten. Um, but maybe it's worth 10 to 15. And now all of a sudden you've set yourself up as clearly financially the most viable option out of the three that are left outside of the big two. And if you're looking at this long-term down the road, my ideal vision for the big 12 has always been just be that best of the rest, be the place where the best of the rest will come. When the ACC breaks up, whether or not someone is able to get in and lawyer up that contract and make it in for the mid 2030s, which is what it's set to go to now. If that happens and everything splinters off, you can be there and be the landing spot for your pit Louisville, you know, schools of that caliber. Um, you want to position yourself for that just so you can be the the last one standing. It's it's kind of a survive and advance sort of a game here. And I think that is just such brilliant, innovative thinking, a way to get an edge and utilize the resources that you have and do it in a very aggressive way. And that like that's what your mark is. Innovative, a doer, and someone who's really aggressive and trying to go out and add like five of these big e-schools and Gonzaga and basketball and then monetize that and give yourself an extra $10, $15 million per year. Um, I don't know how realistic that is. I have heard that number thrown out. And again, I try not to be like sources guy, whatever, but I, I have heard that number thrown out there. Um, and if that is attainable, I have no idea if it actually is, that would be very significant uh, for the big 12. I think it's worth a shot. I guess that's, that's really what I'm saying. Like we all seemingly were at this point after July, 2021, where you thought, all right, four new schools added. You might have to do some crazy unique things like start playing on like, you know, Wednesday nights, Friday nights, whatever it might be embrace gambling. We're all thinking about these different creative ideas. If we were going to be on board for that, I don't know. Adding Gonzaga, Villanova, UConn, St. John's and basketball seems a lot more palatable to me than like playing football games on Wednesday nights. So, you know, if you can, now maybe it'll be some of both, but if we're going to be okay with that sort of thinking and think the big 12 is going to have to be there, why would you not uh, embrace this idea with basketball. So I, I love it. I love it. I love where he's going with that. I think it is the smart move. Utilize your strengths. And one thing that the Big 12 has that everybody else doesn't right now is the strongest basketball league in the country. If you're going to be the best of the sport, you might as well maximize the maximize it financially. It's like just in done. 
Um, I do think breaking some of the sports off is is unique and different than what we've seen. But look, we've seen we've had enough conversations about the NCAA's mismanagement by grouping things together and selling it off, as opposed to maximizing the potential of each sport and each championship. Why would you not take that similar mindset to a conference and say, if you are the basketball conference, your fan bases are ardent, and you can add a few schools that just continue to build that. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. We can nitpick about the teams and obviously having to go all the way from Gonzaga up in Washington to Orlando, Florida, which seems a little bit wild. But at the same time, like you either got to shoot for the moon in some sense or you're going to get left behind. And the Big 12 got left behind because it sat around for quite a while under previous leadership. And I don't mean that as a shot. I think he did some things well, but I think you sat in peacetime and now it's wartime and, and you are trying to take this battle and, and, and do it in the right way and be creative. And so, you know, it, it may not all work, but at this point I'd rather try it and fail than, I mean, do nothing and, and still fail. So, uh, John, you have been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Uh, remind everybody where they can find everything you do covering Kansas state, as well as the big Twelve conference. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that a lot. Really enjoyed it. I, uh, obviously, YouTube, um, first and foremost, if you're a Big 12 fan, that's all Big 12-centric content. Um, it's just John Kurtz, J-O-H-N-K-U-R-T-Z, uh, for the YouTube channel. I'll make sure you subscribe there. I, I go live typically Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, schedule can shift a little bit, and then I'll drop in some content here or there outside of the live shows. But they're, they're a lot of fun. We've got a community of like 16,000 uh, Big 12 fans on there, 16,000 subscribers anyway, and a lot of regulars that make the the conversations really, really fun in the live chat. So it's a cool thing to be a part of. And then if you're a K-State fan, uh, make sure you check out the Three Maw podcast. I assume if you're a Cat fan and you're listening to it, you get the the reference there, E-Maw, but with a three, uh, because there are three of us. So, um, yeah, make sure you check that out wherever it is that you get your podcasts, um, Apple, Spotify, Google. Uh, you can find the Three Maw podcast there. And then uh, follow me on Twitter, too, uh, if you want more minute sort of thing. It's J-L-K-U-R-T-Z, J-L Kurtz, uh, to find me on Twitter. John, keep doing what you're doing. You do a great job with it, and uh, I'll continue to watch you on YouTube, man. Perfect. Sounds great. Boom. Bosco's Boys is here. I think we all wanted it. And the marriage is officially official. I'm so pumped to bring my show to the 1012 Network, Bosco's Boys, the most consistent K-State podcast out there. Over four years with at least one episode a week. Bringing live shows to the listeners, and to the participants every Wednesday at 7 p.m. I'm pumped to be here, and I would love it if you guys came over to Bosco's Boys and gave us a listen, because we are not Big J journos. This is a podcast by a fan and his dog for fellow K-State and Big 12 fans, and I can't wait to chop it up with all the members and fans of the 1012 Network. Uh, we continue to preview and talk about the three softball programs who will be joining the Big 12 uh, for next season. Of course, uh, Houston, UCF, and BYU. Cincinnati joining the Big 12 this July as well, but Cincinnati does not have softball. Uh, we get to kind of wrap up our uh, our team previews or team conversations. We've had Cindy Ball Malone uh, from UCF. We've had uh, Gordon Eakin from BYU. And now I'm very excited to have Kristen Vaselli uh, from Houston joining us today. Uh, Coach Vaselli, welcome to the 1012. How's it going? I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled to have had, a, you know, all three of you have now 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, graced the show. Uh, it's awesome. We uh, we were working really hard to try and make sure we do a good job of covering softball, especially. Uh, it's become a sport that's become very near and dear to my heart. Is one that I've I've really enjoyed. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, Oklahoma State's success has has been part of kind of attracting me to the sport. Um, but since I started watching, like I, I gotta be honest, like it's so much fun. It's such an exciting sport. Uh, it is incredibly competitive. It's exciting to see. I mean, what? Just from a, a kind of a, a helicopter view of college softball, like where do you kind of see this sport now versus you know when you started when you were playing for Oklahoma back back uh, I hate to say back in the day, uh, but uh, <laughs> back in the early two thousands. That's accurate. Um, <laughs> It's been really awesome to be a part of and to kind of how you said have a helicopter view um, and kind of witness the change in our sport. I remember that we had very few games on TV, uh, except for maybe the championship series or a couple games of the World Series, pending on what other sports are going on. And now to see the amount of games streamed on ESPN, ESPN Plus, I mean, it's a platform that you can log on and see pretty much 60% of the teams across the nation, the sport's grown dramatically in the amount of media attention, but also in the amount of resources that athletic departments are starting to put in and see the value. Um, I think I read the other day that it's one of the third most viewed sports now, um, especially when it comes time to postseason. So that is a huge jump. I think anybody that watches it becomes a fan of it. It's fun. It's exciting. It's a fast paced sport, um, but it's also a highly skilled sport. So not just any athlete can go out there and be good. So that's, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, everybody can be a part of um, regardless of your, you know, natural born talent, if you work at it. And uh, I think that's kind of, you know, you watch the world series, you can't turn it off. There's just exciting. It's a great game and a great sport. Yeah. Uh, look, there's no arguing March Madness is the, like the biggest collegiate postseason i know we've got college football playoff stuff but march madness is huge i would argue and put baseball and softball's postseason right there with march madness from from regionals to supers to the world series like it's so much fun it's so exciting you get to see some incredible matchups and it is so competitive when the teams get to oklahoma city if, for those who haven't had a chance to watch it i don't know if your team doesn't have softball everyone in the big 12 doesn't i get it but it is it is worth sitting down and watching a couple of games because there's just it is insane, and it is just the peak of the sport, and and you get to watch some just absolutely incredible athletes compete there in Oklahoma City. Yes, I would agree. I mean, you're, you're talking about the cream de la cream of the sport, um, where March Madness, it is madness. How many upsets do we have this year? Um, and softball's the same. Like, anybody can win, whoever's playing the best that day. I mean, it's it's really cool how equitable it's become across the top 50 teams. Um, the transfer portal's changed the game some, so – you know, a number four from a top school may go somewhere else and be somebody's number one and kind of carry them into postseason. Uh, I'm going to ask, because obviously you are the head coach at Houston. You spent much of your coaching career at the University of Houston, but you played at the University of Oklahoma, uh, <clears throat> the team that is kind of dominating the sport right now. I mean, from a from a former alum standpoint, how kind of excited are you to be able to see Oklahoma on the field for at least one year next season in the Big 12 together? You know, anytime you get to coach against the top team in the nation, um, it's great to measure. Uh, anytime you get to face up versus the person that coached you, I mean, it's a source of pride. You want to win anyway, but you always want to compete your best and, you know, you want your former coach to be prideful of you as well. 
Um, so there's a level of respect and there's a level of legacy. We've played OU three to four times. This is the first year we won't see them. Um, and that was something um, that just didn't line up this year, but we've played them years before. Anytime we have a chance to play our alma maters, I mean, it's just such a great thing as a coach and as a player. Um, you know, you get to see how you how you measure. And um, there's nothing that you can, you know, we, I think we've done a good job of having a tough schedule this year and every year, but they are the measuring stick. I mean, they are the best team in the country, hands down. They're the best program in the country, hands down. And they've created a legacy. Um, and year after year, they just seem to get better and better and um, kind of raise the bar for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, better and better. It's it's every year you think, well, they've lost some studs. Uh, <laughs> surely this is the year they'll take a step back. Nope, they just roster is just, uh, I believe ridiculous is a good word to describe it. Uh, you said scheduling well, and you guys have done a very good job, a very difficult schedule this year. Uh, obviously not as many wins as you would like to see. I mean, look, uh, if we go by RPI rankings, uh, four against the top 25, you throw in another uh, seven against the top 50. I mean, you have put together a very difficult schedule. Is that a philosophy you see yourself keeping once you join the Big 12? Or how is joining the Big 12 going to affect the way you put a non-conference schedule together? Um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We pay attention closely to RPI. You can never predict where a program will be that upcoming year. Um, so we kind of go a two to three year projectory of RPI and the average it. Um, and then that's how we schedule. So the American Conference has fantastic opponents. They're a really strong softball conference. Uh, going into the Big 12, especially that first year, I think four of the programs in the top you know, 25 RPI with the others not far behind. So we will have to make some adjustments um, to make sure that we can get our feet up underneath us and get some wins in the column moving into the Big 12. Um, but with that, you know, again, first year, you get to go in and see kind of where you're at. Um, that's probably the eyes on the prize for us after this year is, okay, how do we make sure we go in and we're competitive? Um, and that means from a program standpoint, that means from administration standpoint and athletic department, um, I know they're, they're doing their due diligence and kind of measuring up every sport and making sure that we have the resources, um, to make sure facilities are top notch and, uh, that we can continue to get some top recruits in here. So you you mentioned recruiting there at the end. I'm curious, how have you seen the news that Houston's joining the Big 12 impact you in recruiting, both from a high school standpoint as well as the transfer portal here these last couple of seasons? From a high school standpoint, it's made a tremendous difference. Um, our 23 and 24 class, we have nine committed in the 24 class. Um, you know, just being able to say you're a Power Five, even though historically we've been a fantastic softball program, um, Power Five just means more TV revenue and money. Um, which generally affects a student athlete's experience. You know, for us, it's it's kind of turned the page for us. And then with transfers, we have phenomenal success with transfers. Um, I think especially once they get to that, you know, sophomore, junior year, um, they're going, okay, I've had an experience maybe in a college town. Let me go somewhere else where I can get on the field, um, get a get great degree, and then have a life outside of, you know, the college. Um, and I think that's what the city provides us is making sure that they have a well-balanced life and they can be able to do and find the people they want to hang out with, the food they want to eat. Um, and it gets their foot in the door with internships. I mean, we're the 4 million people with a ton of alumni. Um, we kind of just set them up for that next step to make sure they get in the career field they want and that they have a job when they graduate. 
Yeah, I, I am interested to see the impact for Houston as a as a whole. I mean, you have a lot of college towns in the Big 12 as is Houston. I mean, obviously you have Texas in Austin, but you've got Orlando and Houston joining the Big 12 essentially as as cities. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how that that impact being in a city like Houston continues to affect uh, all of the sports there, including softball. Coach Vaselli, I want to talk about this team a little bit. I, I think the name everyone who pays attention would know would be uh, Kenna Wilkie. Uh, she's been an incredible for you guys on the mound. I believe she was preseason uh, pitcher of the year, if I recall correctly. Uh, she just got pitcher of the week for the AAC after uh, you guys swept Memphis. I mean, she is, I believe, on her last with COVID. I never know. You just you're like, yo, someone's a seventh year player. I know they've got two years left. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, with COVID, I never know. But I assume this is going to be her last year in college. How big is she for you this year? And then, what do you guys kind of have as far as building behind her, preparing for for next season without her? You know, uh, she is our workhorse. Uh, she's got majority of the innings. Um, she's conditioned for that. Um, her physique fits that. She was that at her previous school, uh, her first year or two in college. Um, she wants the ball, and that's such, such a big thing as a pitcher. It's like, okay, oh, I'm not starting? Dang it. Okay, I'm still a good team player and want our team to win, but she wants the ball. I mean, if she doesn't get the ball, she's a little disappointed, and that that as a coach is a great feeling. Um, you know, she's going to be vital for our success moving down. We try not to put too many innings on her leading into conference, and now conference is her time to shine. Um, and she stepped up tremendously this weekend. She's a fantastic starting pitcher. Uh, she rarely gives up a lot of runs early in games. So that's something that gives us a chance to get our feet up underneath us, uh, to be competitive in every single game and give us a chance to push at the end. Now, as you said, this will be her last year. I mean, talk to me about those you have behind her, Taylor Edwards, Hannah uh, Blinko, and kind of how the staff is preparing to ha- basically have life without Wilkie. Um, you know, Taylor Edwards, we got a mid-year transfer, which is awesome. She's gotten some innings this year. We expect her to have a bigger role going down the stretch as well. Um, we didn't get a fall to work with her and develop her. So that's something, you know, I think next year her plate is going to be significantly more full with innings uh, because she will have that summer to put her on a program and that fall to really develop pitches. Um, and then spring will be her time to shine. We do have Hannah Blinko. She's taken a lot of innings this year, way more than she did the year before. Um, Again, for her, she's young, just making sure that she's getting experience, making sure that we're working, you know, accuracy and then pitch development. Um, We also signed a transfer pitcher already that was on the portal. Um, So she's going to come in as a senior, as a grad senior, and come in and, and get a lot of starts as well. She's doing quite well at her school. Um, you know, she asked to wait till the end of the season to kind of post things on her end. We want to respect that. Um, but we have already signed another arm and we're going to be looking to pick up one to two more arms as well. Cause we lose, uh, Celine Flores this year as well. Um, and then Maddie, uh, Boyd may or may not take her COVID year. You mentioned <clears throat> with Kenna, you know, built to pitch a lot of innings. Um, what, what does, what does that mean? What, what is the difference between kind of the a pitcher who is as you said, built to, to pitch a lot of innings versus one who maybe not as much. So how do, you, how do you get to the point where you're built to be able to take on that workload? I think it's twofold. Sometimes it's your frame and what you can handle. Um, and then, you know, obviously your muscle mass and uh, mobility. And then um, what uh, Coach Oliver's done in the bullpen is make sure that her pitch counts high enough that she can handle 250 to 300 pitches in, an, uh, in a weekend. So she's conditioned for that. 
she threw a lot of innings um, when she was at Northwestern as well. Um, so she's about five, nine, good muscle mass. Um, she makes sure that she really takes care of her body. We do a lot of post game recovery, day off recovery stuff to make sure that, you know, all of our players are getting what they need, um, making sure that they're doing ice baths, they're doing, they get massages, you know, all the things that they need to do to make sure that she's fresh. Um, we have access to a lot of stuff, obviously being the biggest, one of the biggest cities in the nation. Um, we make sure that they have all the resources available to recover. Off the mound, who are some of the players Big 12 fans should go ahead and start familiarizing themselves with that you expect to be here with the program next year when you guys are in the Big 12? Um, obviously, Tria Coleman. She's had a fantastic year. She transferred to us from Oklahoma. She's a hometown kid. Um, she's had a great start this year. She's played third and caught for us this year as well. So I expect her to continue to have a big role. Um, Janiah Thomas is another one. Last year, she was a third baseman for us. This year, she's starting in outfield. Um, I'm trying to think of some of our younger. Um, Paige Holsey is another one. She was uh, starting second base for us for her sophomore year. And then last year was a right fielder. And then this year is a center fielder. So we have a little bit of a pipeline coming behind. Um, and then the 23 class, we expect them to come in and compete. Um, and take some of the starting spots, um, either from returners or we do graduate a couple of returners, making sure that we're filling the pipeline and that, you know, they understand where we need to be and we need to elevate the program. Well, so I, I have to ask, you know, I was going through uh, Houston and preparation and just doing some research once, you know, knew these teams were joining and you had a really strong start to your head coaching career there at Houston, uh, made regionals in second and third year, 30 or more wins in your first three seasons. You had a strong start to 2020 and then COVID hit. And it seems like it's been just maybe a little bit more of a, of a struggle since then. I, I'm curious, was this an impact from COVID and what that was? Or is this just like, what, what's going on? I, I don't mean that bad. I'm just you know, as you guys prepare, I, 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 I never know the best way to be like, look, things are not as good as they were. Right. Uh, what are you attributing that to? And, and how are you guys working trying to kind of turn that around and correct, the, correct those issues? I mean, the year, again, COVID happened. We're in the top 25. I mean, we had the year after we had everything you could think of as a coach, uh, things that I've never seen as an assistant coach. I called other head coaches and was like, hey, help me, help mentor me. I'm stuck. Um, you know, some of the things that come along with women athletics, um, you know, we are women and that is part of um, the awesomeness of our sport, but also some of the challenges. Um, we have not been able to get a horse like Savannah Hebner. And I think uh, Kenna Wilkie's probably that next one we've had. Um, but being able to say like, okay, you, every time we run you out there, there's a good 80 per 90% chance we're going to win. Um, and pre-COVID we had Savannah Hebner and she, uh, you know, her ERA was in the ones. Um, you know, she had a bunch of strikeouts. So, you know, you're having somebody now, Kenna's doing the same thing, uh, but just continuing to get those top pitchers in that, you know, you give up less runs, you win a lot of games. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, we've seen, especially when it gets to postseason, if you've got one, like you should go far. If you've got one of the best, you should be able to make a good run. But it, it, I mean, honestly, looking at things now, I mean, you look at, at Oklahoma last year, you look at honestly Oklahoma State, you look at some of these top programs. If you've got one, you're you're good. But if you want to really make it deep and into Oklahoma City, you've got to have two good arms or at least one stud, one reliable. And then you hope you've got a third one in the wings that can step up because things happen. And we've seen that. I mean, it's, it's getting to a point where just one alone isn't going to isn't going to get you to the mountaintop. Um, it, it's it's incredible. Where it, used to, I mean, it really did feel like if you had one stud, you were set. It, it's not that way anymore, almost. 
It's not. Um, and that's something that we've been working through is, you know, the last couple of years, like, okay, if you have a consistent starter, who's your game two starter, you can go somebody game one and three, who's your game two starter. Um, and it, it, we took a chance this week and we started kind of all three starts. She started well, we were able to bring in pitching um, later in games. Uh, but that, again, we rely heavily on offenses saying, hey, you got to score early and give give us a chance to get ahead and get some of these other kids some experience. Um, and as coaches, we tried something different early in the year and just kind of it's like, hey, let's work through it. Let's try to get to this point. Let's get some confidence. Let's get some experience. And, um, you know, it wasn't going how it needed to go. So we made some adjustments to coaching and our philosophy and who we're going to start. Um most games or who's showing us they could start now that we have about a seven, eight game or a seven to eight game, seven to eight day stretch with practice. Um, now we can go ahead and say, okay, let's scrimmage. Let's do some live. Let's see who's been developing over the last week or two um, to make sure that we do have game two and game three starters. If, the, if they can be different starters and we can use Ken in a different role. Um, but again, one arm is not enough anymore. Um, and that's something that we've realized and we're trying to build that staff. Um, and then the other thing we're making adjustments to is, Hey, we got to go get some hitters. Um, and we got to go get some elite hitters, the big 12. I mean, they stand, they pitch and they stand in the bank. Um, and that's something for us. It's like, okay, where's our scholarship money tied up and how do we redirect that and make sure that we're building an adequate offense behind the pitchers. You guys, <clears throat> nice start to uh, to AAC play, as we mentioned, and a nice three-game sweep at Memphis this past weekend. I, I want to wrap on this. Uh, you guys are off this weekend, uh, the bye week in conference play. I've seen kind of a variance in how coaches do things. I've seen coaches where that week go off in conference play, they're going to give the team a break. I've seen other ones go out and either challenge or try and keep the team playing. Uh, what goes into the thought process of saying we're just going to take we're just going to take a long week off? Um, you guys will be back for a doubleheader uh, next Tuesday against Stephen F. Austin at home. But I mean, what went into the thought process of let's take a week off versus let's try and 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 keep a, a team on the schedule? We front loaded our schedule, so the first few weekends we played five or six games every single weekend, and then we started having a couple midweeks. Um, and with that sometimes comes fatigue and we found in the past we've done it before where we get you know when you can get four or five days of practice in and actually improve your skill and not just refreshing um, give them a day or two off to make sure that their bodies are healing um, and that their minds are sharp and that's something that um, we're doing this week is we're going to go pretty heavy um, but also give them a little bit of rest uh, and make sure that we when we practice Monday that we're ready to go on Tuesday um, gives us a couple of days to prep for opponents, which we haven't had with midweeks. Um, last week with Memphis was the first time we've had a full week to prepare for an opponent. Um, and we want to make sure we get back to that, making sure that conference is our priority and making sure we do an adequate job the week before and the week of to prepare for these opponents. Um, and now that we have time to get better, we need to focus on what we need to do and improve our strengths. Yeah, uh, AAC is definitely, I think, a, a very solid uh, mid-major conference. I mean, granted, the Big 12 is rated it and pulling two of the better teams out of the conference with UCF and Houston. You guys got to go to Wichita State, go to UCF. Uh, you've got a midweek against Texas A&M on the schedule. Uh, you got a midweek against, I think, a sneaky good McNeese team as well. So it, you've definitely got yourself uh, quite the challenge moving forward, but I am excited to see how your team continues to perform this year uh, and, and cannot wait to see 
Houston in the Big 12 next year. Coach Vaselli, I really do appreciate your time. You have been fantastic. Look, fans, if you're in Houston area, if you're a Houston fan, check out the team. It's always fun. Softball's a good time. The games aren't super long. I took my daughter out to go watch a game at uh, an OSU game at UCA. We had an absolute blast. Like, <laughs> I live in Arkansas, so it's the closest I can do. Uh, but seriously, like, folks, go watch a Houston game. I think you guys will be impressed. Again, Coach Vaselli, really, really appreciate your time today, and good luck to you guys, girls the rest of the season. Thank you for having us on and go Cougs. Sports Social Podcast Network.